So you're always welcome to keep your kids if you want, but we offer Kids Club as an option for some of the smaller kids. So, like that one. We'll open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. This morning, we'll be moving through the end of chapter 10 into chapters 11, 12, and 13 as we continue our series on it in the book of Joshua called The Promised Land. I want to keep reminding you that it's called the promised land because God promised it to his people. In fact, we find that promise in the book of Genesis as far back as Genesis 12. Genesis 12.1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from the country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised this land to Abram. You know him as Abraham. And he kept reaffirming his promise to his children and to their children. And so on and so forth. That God is such a promise keeper that to many generations, he keeps his promises. Now, that's crucial for us because we are generations removed from the times of the New Testament to know that Jesus still keeps his word to us. It's an affirmation of God's faithfulness. But we even see the affirmation of this promised land given to Joshua. It says in Joshua chapter 1, this is God speaking to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise... Go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. God is re-initializing the promise. He brought them to this land, and he's giving them the land because he promised it. Friends, we can never underestimate his promises. Never. Because he's faithful and he will keep them forever and ever and ever and ever. And, and this is a really big and, we've also repeatedly put before you the reality that God's plan to bring God's people into the promised land was not easy. It was not simple and it was not free of challenges. In fact, What God said would be theirs took an awful lot of work to accomplish. We need to be reminded of that because we could be tempted to believe even the Christian life should be simple. And we'd miss the scriptures to think that. As we've walked through Joshua, it has been fight after fight, battle after battle. In Joshua 3, they had to overcome a river that was beyond flood stage. In Joshua chapter 6, they had to overcome Jericho, a city at that point that had the highest known walls. In 7 and 8, they had to overcome Ai. And at the beginning of chapter 10, they had to overcome an army made up of five tribes. So why is there so much fighting and war in Joshua? First, I think it's to illustrate to you and to me the challenges that we will face living out our faith in Jesus Christ. 
I think it, should, it would be profoundly obvious to us if we continue to study through the books of the scriptures to see that it is not a simple life we've been called to. It's a war. And secondly, and more contextually, I think it's because God has called his people to pursue a purity that wasn't found in the land that they were inheriting. He was calling them to reflect his character, his nature. And that's what you find in Joshua, a call to purity. As we've walked through this study, we put the call of Deuteronomy 20 before you several times. The book of Deuteronomy serves as Moses preaching to the Israelites, preparing them to go into the promised land. But this morning, I want to put a different text before you. I want to put Deuteronomy 7 before you because it gives us the same charge. This is what Deuteronomy 7 says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. Now, I want to put that before you first because this is God laying out a promise. I'm going to move you into this place. And look at it. It says, God's going to clear away these nations before you. And God acknowledges to them, they're bigger than you and they're stronger than you, but I'm going to take the fight. Verse 2. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, You must then devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. God has promised them the victory even in the promised land, even though he's going to ask them to walk through the difficulties and the challenges. And in verse 3, he tells you why. For you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Do you not see how seriously God takes purity? That even in the midst of Deuteronomy, he would say, This must be destroyed, lest you be given over to it, and I have to destroy you also. Verse 5, But thus... Shall you deal with them? You shall break down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carven image with fire. And as we step into verse 6, I want to ask you to listen a little closely because you're going to start to hear some language that sounds New Testament-like, especially and particularly like 1 Peter 2. Verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the people who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, it's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of his mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
You see God declaring his love for his people, not for who they are, not for what they have to offer, but because they're his and because he made a promise. It's powerful in Deuteronomy. Verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. The book of Joshua is filled with fighting and war because God loves his people. Because God desires to protect his people. Now, without question, there is judgment in this book. And without question, there will be judgment in this world. The Bible is full of it. Here you see it somewhat practically. But we can't move past the fact that it happens because God loves his people and he's called them to a purity, to a holiness that is his. He's calling his people to be conformed to his image, to reflect his character. He calls them to a purity. And in Joshua, that meant war. And as we've walked through this series, I've wanted you to see that we're at war too. But it's a different kind of war for uh, you and me. Paul writes that in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 12 and 13. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Which is to say this, God's not going to call you into a physical battle for purity. He's not going to call you to pick up a sword and strike down those people. He says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says we are in the middle of a spiritual fight. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Friends, if you've not studied Ephesians 6, I would commend it to you because it would lay before you the reality that the devil is shooting at you with flaming arrows of fire attempting to take you down. Just like Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked me to sift you like wheat. We we make the mistake of assuming that the The evil one is not active and at work when that's exactly what Paul writes in Ephesians. That you would be able to stand firm. As we've walked through Joshua so far, he keeps showing us these close-ups of these specific battles, these specific fights. And this morning, we're going to, as we move to the middle of the book, he's going to start to summarize more. That's why we're picking up our pace a little bit. That's why we're covering nearly four chapters this morning. So we're going to have to be a little patient because there's some long parts of text I'm going to read for us, but there's some important things for us to glean from it, I believe. So at the end of chapter 10, Joshua summarizes 
the conquest of southern Cana. I'll give it to you quickly. Joshua 10, verse 29. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he'd done to the king of Jericho. Joshua will go on to mention four other cities in this passage. In verse 31, he mentions Lachish. Verse 34, Eglon. In verse 36, Hebron. In verse 38, Debir. Walking through these battles, and in verse 40, he says... So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowlands, and the slopes, and their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. So he's summarized a conquest over all of southern Cana, and in chapter 11, he moves to the northern Cana, and takes another step deeper. Joshua 11, verse 1. When Jabin, king of Azor, heard of this, he sent to Joab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in the Nephathador on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hittites or the Hivites, under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. There's a lot of names in there. By the way, in seminary, they say, if you come across names you don't know, just go with it with passion. Just say it and just, boo, and everyone will just believe you. (laughs) Verse 4, they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all of these kings joined their forces and came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. He takes a step deeper. He gives you a broader picture. And what Joshua starts to paint for you in Joshua 11 is a pretty insurmountable force. A a pretty incredible fight. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never looked at a challenge before in my life and thought, well, that is a great horde. A number that is like the sea of the sand on the seashore. That's never occurred to me, but that's how Joshua here describes it. And even as we walk through this text, he's still trying to get to this place where he's juxtaposing, he's putting in contrast the opinions of men and the, the strength of God. That there's this thing before them that seemed like there's no way they'd be able to get through it. And yet somehow there's a a power and a strength in the Lord that always carries them through. There's this insurmountable force, and yet the word of God. And we see that in verse 6 when God speaks. Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of... I will give them over... (laughs) I will give over all of them slain to Israel... You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. You shall destroy their strength. How much easier is it to go into a fight if you know you're going to win? That's the 
one reality you see in Joshua over and over again is this difficulty that doesn't even seem like they could walk through it, and yet God's faithfulness is before them. God tells them, I will take care of it. Friends, that's the very nature of Paul's argument in Romans 6 to you and me about our struggle with sin. Listen to this. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in death like his, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. It no longer has power over you. You've been set free. The battle's taken care of. It's already been declared victorious. We know the end of the story, do we not? Paul continues a couple verses later, verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how he summarizes it. Therefore, go forward considering sin dead. Go forward considering yourself alive in Christ and dead to sin. That's how he summarizes this. This is like God going to Joshua and saying, there's a huge insurmountable force in front of you. You're going to be overwhelmed if you stare at it. Should you start to describe it, you're going to be given over to these large word pictures that are going to seem frightening, but I've got it all taken care of. It's in the palm of my hand. You're already going to win. So as Joshua continues in chapter 7, he turns back to summarizing verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises from Seir, as far as Belgad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all of their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Now in chapter 12, which we're not going to touch, he summarizes by name all of the kings that were defeated, listing 31 of them. So I think if there's something for us to glean from this, something for us to realize if we were to study Joshua 10, 11, and 12, and we were to look at a map and take it under consideration, and we were to see them take southern Cana and see them fight in northern Cana, I think the thing that we should glean from that is to say this. That the battle against sin and the fight for purity is wide. That it is far-reaching. That is to say, it wasn't just walk in and fight Jericho and be done. 
It's to fight this fight and 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 to fight this one. And the moment to which you think you might be done waging war against sin, it will be only to realize the fighting has just begun. That's what you see in Joshua. For the moment they finish one place, they move on to the next. It was a far-reaching fight that took an extraordinarily long time. I want us to consider for a moment what Paul has to say to the Colossians in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you see where Joshua the imagery of Joshua stands in the New Testament. Paul says, kill it. Put it to death. And he doesn't just mention one thing. He doesn't just say, hey, that thing you struggle with. He mentions five things. And not just to deal with them, but to kill all five of them. He doesn't just say, hey, you've got a lust problem, deal with it. He says you've got a purity problem, you've got a passion problem, you've got a desire problem, you've got a coveting problem, and he's not talking about me, he's talking about all of us. And he continues to write as if five problems weren't enough for us. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you you too once walked, when you were living in them, He makes a distinction between where we're at now and where we used to be. That where we used to be, we lived in sin. We put up with sin. We handled sin. But now in Christ Jesus, we kill it. We walk away from it. So in verse 8, he says, But now you must put them all away. And he gives us another list. Anger. Wrath. Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Friends, just as Joshua walked into the promised land to fight after fight after fight after fight, So that his people would know purity. So that they wouldn't be given over to things that would impact their family for generations. So you too are called to wage war against sin. Literally to put it to death. And not just the simple ones. And not just the obvious ones. And not just the ones that you think when you write down on a piece of paper what you're struggling with. It's all of it. So that everything from anger to lying has to be dealt with. And it has to be dealt with strongly and forcefully. It's a wide fight. It's a far-reaching battle. And it's also a long one. Chapter 13, Joshua, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, 
And the Lord said to him, I like this part, you are old and advanced in years. (laughs) And there remains yet very much land to possess. The Lord goes on to explain. Goes on to explain that there's still much left for him to do. Now you need to know that one commentator said that easily you could estimate Joshua to to be in his early 100s when this is written. That right here in Joshua 13, he's probably 103, 104. Some people put him as low as 90. God's saying there's still a fight. I still have work for you to do. There's still more for you to possess. Which is to say the fight is not just wide, the fight is long. I remember as a seminary student, one of the great privileges I had was to regularly meet with a retired missionary who was in his mid-80s. Pete spent most of his life between Sudan and Liberia. And about once a month, I would eat lunch with him. We loved to go to this Ethiopian restaurant, and we would sit and talk for hours. Almost every time we got together, Pete would tell me the same stories about how he fell in love with his wife, Sadie. I could probably tell you the stories. I heard them so many times. But the other thing he told me almost every time we got together was about the sin that he was still struggling with. I got to tell you, on one hand, it was the most encouraging thing to me, and on the other hand, it was the most defeating. It was encouraging to me to know that this man, whom I considered a saint, was far more like me than I thought. And it was discouraging because I really wanted to believe in my heart of hearts that my war on sin would be over soon. That I could somehow beat it in my mid-twenties and live on a great life sin-free. But that's not the testimony he had for me. Friends, the battle against Sid is, is wide, but it's also long. Let's take heed from the author of Hebrews when he writes, Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, talking about the history, the testimony of the saints flowing out of Hebrews 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What the author of Hebrews wants to put before you is that you're running a race. It's a different but equally good metaphor for the Christian life. We're running a race. And every race has a beginning and every race has an end. But if you're honest, the end is way more important than the beginning. For anyone could begin the Boston Marathon. Only the few can finish it. All the stories will be different in between. But the author gives you several pointers about the race. The first thing he says is run with endurance. Why? Because the goal is not to start strong and then fall off. I've seen lots of guys do that in my life. Start off with incredible passion and then, whoop, they're gone. The goal is to finish the race. 
And to do that, we must lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. The author says, get rid of sin. It's going to keep you from finishing. It's going to hold you back. But please also note that's not the only thing he tells you to get rid of. There seems to be this other category of weights that you might carry. That, that aren't sin, but they're bad things that hold you back. There's this other thing that the author says, man, you got to get rid of this stuff so that we can run, so that we can finish the race. And how do we do that? And he does the most important, crucial thing he can do. He points us to Jesus Christ. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such great hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He wants you to keep in mind the testimony of Jesus and to be really fair, the testimonies of all the guys of, and women of Hebrews 11 who paid an incredible price for their faith. That we would be built up to say, you know what? You're going to have to endure some stuff. It's going to be really hard. You're not going to know if you're going to make it or not, but hang on. Hang on. Let go of sin. Push aside everything that's holding you back and look at Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look at Christ. Friends, if we've walked through Joshua, it's been fight after fight after fight after fight. And the book tells us the fight went wide and it goes long. So it doesn't matter how old you are at this moment in this room, your fight against sin is not over. In fact, it's going to be right before you in this minute and this afternoon and tomorrow and all week long. But do this. Look to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Look to Jesus, that he would be our encouragement, that he would be our hope, that he would be our joy. Friends, the battle has already been won. He's defeated sin and death. And so we walk. As we work through these texts this morning, there's a lot of sin that comes before us. Colossians puts it there. The New Testament puts it there. That there's a battle for sin that we have to fight. And it's wide and it's long. And I'd be remiss if we didn't at least take a moment to give us some time to prayerfully consider that. To take a moment and seek God and say, God, is there anything in my life that I need to be working on? Is there a battle I need to be waging? Is there a war I need to be fighting?
So as I conclude this message, I want to conclude it this way. I'm about to put Psalm 139, 23, and 24 on the board. And what I want us to do is I want us to together pray this out loud with, one, with each other. We'll say it in unison, and then I want us to take a minute or two to just quietly reflect on what it says. Because if the battle is wide and it's long, that means none of us is it over for. It means all of us have this to deal with today. So say this with me, Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's take a minute to just prayerfully consider where we're at with sin. Father, I have no doubt that in this room there are people who are just getting their pants kicked in with sin. And I have no doubt that there are folks who are finding victory. Father, I'm exceptionally thankful that this is a communion Sunday for us to be reminded that the cross you took care of all of it you forgive all of it and that we indeed have been set free in every conceivable manner Father it says in Hebrews that you're perfecting those who've already been perfected that the work of the cross has already freed us and yet you're still at work in us redeeming our image protecting us from the sin that we would chase after, protecting us from the impact of the sin we might chase. Father, would you be at work amongst us? Would you not let sin be hidden? Would you force it to the front? Not that, not that we would be ashamed. Not that we would feel guilty, but Father, that we would know that we're truly free. That we'd know we're truly forgiven. Father, would you give us the grace to walk as a forgiven people? 
knowing that you've forgiven all of our sins. When the author of Hebrews wrote about a long race, he didn't say keep looking at the sin that's holding you back. He said let it go and look at Jesus. So Father, with our sin, we ask that you would forgive us. We take it to the cross and we ask that you would forgive us. We don't want to keep dwelling on it. We want to look at Jesus. We want to look to our great hope. We want to look at the one who already won the fight. Jesus, thank you so much for, your, for going to the cross, for enduring it, for despising the shame. And thank you that you're seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling. It's in your name we pray. Amen.